0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past.
1: I mean, I had to ask one man when he was describing this carnage in the plaza at the World Trade Center, like, what was in the pool of blood? He said body parts. Journalist
2: Dean Murphy, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Buell Thompson. The September 11, 2001 attacks in New York and Washington were to this generation what Pearl Harbor was to our parents and grandparents. And as the histories are written of those events, it's very important, it's essential to have eyewitness accounts. But journalist Dean Murphy of the New York Times wanted to go beyond just simple eyewitness accounts, so he assembled, painstakingly assembled, a complete oral history of that day in a book that was published about a year after the attack. The book was called September 11th, An Oral History. Now, some of the descriptions that we'll be talking about in this interview are not in and of themselves graphic, but the overall subject matter may be disturbing to some people. So here now, from September 2002, Dean Murphy.
1: Well, there are a lot of books out there, as you know. Um, This particular book really was meant to be something different. It's supposed to preserve the eyewitness accounts of that day in a very authentic and fresh way. And that was really my goal. You'll see there's no, there's no uh, glossy pictures or images of crashing airplanes or falling buildings. It's 250 pages of words. And that was, that was the focus, to get the words as they came from the people who witnessed the events, fresh, immediate, and in book form.
0: And these are the people who were closest, in some cases, to the actual tragedy. This is, with all due respect to Oprah, there's nothing inherent about Oprah. Yes, I was sitting at my kitchen table in Chicago, and I was horrified. <laughs> no, you talk to actual people who right. who experienced the horror and the terror, and that, as you describe it at one point, that, that pit in the stomach, that, that kind of collapsing inward on yourself kind of feeling that day.
1: Absolutely. And that sort of was the, again, by design, I was looking to get... The oral history of that day. There are people sitting in the kitchen somewhere who have their own version of what happened mm-hmm. that day. Let's face it, we were all mm-hmm. witnesses to it's that. That's our day. own Pearl Harbor. Absolutely. No matter where you were, you're going to remember where you were. And I actually have a couple people in the book, partly because of that, who were not in the World Trade Center or at the Pentagon, who but had some immediate connection to someone there. Mm-hmm. There's a father who was on the 91st floor of the wor- of the first tower. And I have some emails from his son in London, who was obviously very connected. There's a woman in Arkansas who had actually sold some baseball caps to a guy who was in one of the towers as well, and her sort of distant uh, fear for him. So I tried to capture a couple of those, but that really was not the purpose. The purpose was to create a history of that day. And I really took that task seriously, the idea of somehow... Providing one little stone in this big historical wall of September 11th, we know from all kinds of histories whether it's the Civil War, whether it's World War II, people will be arguing for decades to come about all Mm. kinds of things. Did Roosevelt try to get us into the war? You know, who was responsible for for the North or the South? Was it economic? Was it slavery? You know, these debates are going to happen about September 11th. My purpose was to provide just the beginning, the first take of the history, and that is the first-hand witnesses.
0: Well, if history is a hundred-million-piece jigsaw puzzle, you've provided us some of the the puzzle pieces so that it, as over time, the picture will become clearer and clearer, because every single one of these people witnessing the same event looked at it from a different point of view, and saw something a little bit different.
1: Felt it a little bit differently. In some cases, literally felt it a little Absolutely. bit differently. That's absolutely right. And it was interesting because last night we had a sort of a memorial event in Manhattan where people from the book were invited to come. And as you can imagine, most of the people in the book don't know each other. I sort of went about picking who I thought would be best as a representative sample of what happened that day. And that didn't really mean guys sitting next to each other mm-hmm. in the same office building. And last night, a couple of them got up and read from their narratives from their uh narratives. And one of them, after it was over, stood up and just said, you know, I just never experienced anything similar to what, and he pointed to somebody else, experienced. My experience was entirely different. And it was his first realization, he actually, this is Louis, uh, Louis Leshy, he's in the book. He it was the first time he had actually read everybody else's account or had heard them and realized that his was very different. And so even for the people who experienced them, the diversity of the experiences is, is somewhat daunting. Oh, what was it? That old TV show it used to say seven million
0: stories in the naked city you you know, or something like that. You could have two people standing side by side in the same office and would have very different kinds of reactions. Now, I have to tell you, years ago I worked in the Gannett Building, which was on the flight path into Reagan National Airport. And there was an apocryphal story that one time a plane came very close enough to the building that you could look out the window and see the people in the plane and see their faces. So it sent a chill down my spine to read the story that you've got in here of gentlemen who were on the roof of a nearby building and are seeing people in the windows of the first plane
1: that's right that gentleman was actually on the roof of the federal reserve bank which was actually a few blocks away from the world trade center and there had been a routine inspection on the roof because one of his painters was supposed to be painting the stairwell and he noticed water dripping and he thought we better go figure out why there's water i'm not going to paint the stairwell if it's going to be stained and so this guy went up his name is Ed Stawarts. he went up on the roof with and it was a beautiful day on september 11th as we all remember and so he invited a couple of his workers to go up and they were inspecting the roof and that's when they heard this noise this rumbling noise and he looked and he had literally a bird's eye view of this airplane the first one that hit the north tower And it was extremely eerie for him because he thought that this was an accident. And then at the very last second, he saw the pilot gun the engines and point the plane directly for the tower. And that's when he saw it go past him. And he could see figures in the windows. The whole rest of that day must have just been surreal for him it was i mean the, the, if you read his account you'll see as the, as the day goes on when the when the tower collapses his building as well as all the other ones around there get covered in debris and then the whole security issue starts to kick in you could see the evolution of that day in some of these stories you know first he's shocked by what he sees then they're just overwhelmed by the the dirt and the filth and the shock of that and then suddenly they've got armed guards down there because it's a federal building and they were afraid that there's going to be an attack maybe mm-hmm. on them mm-hmm. and people fleeing the trade center trying to seek assistance in some of those buildings they weren't allowed to let them in because of the fear of a. Uh, federal installation being a target. The whole lockdown mentality,
0: which affected you, you. you, It took hours for you to get into town. Absolutely, right. Just the idea that you don't know what's coming next has to be one of the most terrifying. I, from this window, I could see the smoke from the Pentagon. And all day long as I'm sitting in this room doing my reporting on the air, I'm thinking, in the back of my mind is, I'm within eyesight of the White House and Congress and and other potential targets, we don't know if they have a tactical nuclear weapon, so I'm trying to remember all my, my you know, if you see the flashlight, duck and cover, Right. you know, all these
1: things we laughed at, you know, for the last 30 years, suddenly became alarmingly real. Absolutely, and I think that's, when you see the book, that's one of the reasons I was really careful to make sure the Pentagon was included in this. There are a lot of books about September 11th, and this isn't a criticism, but they have all focused on New York. And I think the Pentagon experience, especially for people here in Washington, was just as harrowing and psychologically uh, damaging as, as the one in New York. Admittedly, the loss of life was less, but you know, one one dead person is mm-hmm. one too many, you could say. So, um, you'll see that there are people in the book who actually were in the Pentagon and explain what it was like for them to be here in that environment and what was. As a journalist, I was covering the events in New York for the New York Times. I had not covered the events in in, in the Pentagon. And so it was actually very educational for me, because one thing that I didn't have any understanding of was that the people in the Pentagon were following the events in New York, just like the rest of America was for those first you know few minutes when the first plane hit and then the second plane hit. And then they got hit, and a lot of people were watching television. They were calling Mm -hmm. friends in New York. They were doing what all the rest of us were doing, and then they became a target. And it's important that that's not forgotten in the context of September 11th. After this short break, Dean Murphy explains why he had to ask for
2: the most disturbing details. There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything.
0: Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode.
2: back to my 2002 conversation with Dean Murphy. Well, when you reach down into the, the, the
0: terror of that day, it doesn't really matter in the end if you were on the third floor of the Pentagon or the 103rd floor of the World Trade Center. The feeling has to have been the same when you when you see an object crashing
1: through the wall and and almost killing you instantly. Right. right. And, and I think the difference between the two places is only in the difference of the perspective of the people who experience them. And that was another... Goal in the book was to make sure I got a broad cross section of people who experienced that day. You'll see there's a general, a surgeon mm-hmm. general for the Air Force from the Pentagon, and there's a high school student at Stuyvesant High School right near Ground Zero in New York. You have somebody who was on the 91st floor of the first tower. Who literally was sitting at his desk and saw the underbelly of the plane go into the floor above him and then you have a woman who worked in the subterranean basement of the World Trade Center who was the keeper of the keys and saw everything on television screens and on telephone calls from frantic people trapped in elevators so the idea, you're right, the, the horror of, of that kind of cataclysmic event is very common in the sense that everyone shares it, that, that commonality but the perceptions the, the, the sort of yeah. The, the the approach that different people had because of their own unique circumstances of what I think differentiates each of the stories.
0: And I don't gather from any of these stories that people had trouble when you were talking with them thinking, now let's see. I can't quite remember
1: everything is very vivid, isn't it? It is, but that's partly the benefit of being able to write a book because I was able to go over it and over it with people. There's actually one person in the book, um, Anthony Whitaker, who was the chief of the Port Authority Police. He was actually a captain then. He's now an assistant chief. But he was the guy in charge of the World Trade Center. And he's the guy who ordered the building to be evacuated after the first plane hit. He talks about memory lapses. But the other ones had some memory lapses or they hadn't quite ordered the day. But the beauty of writing a book versus writing a news story on a day-to-day basis is that I could go back and we could go over this. There's a lot of interviewing that went on. People sent me emails. We talked in person on the telephone, and I asked them to sort of start to order their day from beginning to end because a lot of them hadn't done that. A lot of them, you know, let's just say you were just in some traumatic event, you would immediately tell people about the trauma of the immediate event Mm -hmm. that was most close to you actually dying probably Mm -hmm. or the most horrific thing you saw. You might not really go back and go over the entirety of your experience until later. And that's what happened in this case. I went to people who I thought had I'd heard of a horrific Aspect that I really wanted to talk to them about, and then as you say to them, okay, let's start at the beginning of the day. I want the entirety of your day. You suddenly find out there's all these other things that were just as amazing, and that they themselves had not really put in one timeline. And so, in that sense, the memory thing is is interesting because uh, well, you're part you're part therapist then at that point. I'll tell you, I had a lot of sleepless nights. I don't even pretend to say that what I experienced was a a tenth of what these people went through. But you cannot do this intense of work, this talking to so many people in such great depth, in such detail, and asking them, such personal questions without
0: becoming extremely involved with them. That wall of journalistic objectivity tends to have some breaches in it, doesn't it?
1: It does, and I sort of justified it in my own mind in, in that this was a unique experience. I mean, we talk about journalists, in fact, one of the reviewers of the book mentions this, journalists being writers of rough drafts of history, and that as a writer of a rough draft of history one of your most important uh, priorities is the deadline. You need to get it done. And sometimes you sacrifice context and sometimes you sacrifice accuracy, not intentionally, but it happens. I viewed this as like a second draft. I got to go back and really go into detail with people. And to do that, They had to trust me. These people, they're not just giving, you know, the bare bones chronology of their escape. They're not giving just the mechanics. It's all there. You know, I got to the 99th floor. I got Mm -hmm. to the stairwell C. I did all that. Or in the case of the Pentagon, you know, I ended up going out this door versus that door. That's all there. But these people also bear their inner selves. I mean, they really share their highs and their lows and their their moments of confidence and their moments of fear the things they're proud of, the things they're shameful of. And to get people to do that, they have to really believe that you're going to treat it accurately and respectfully and to do that you can't have the same distance that you would have in a normal hello i'm here from the new york times please tell me your story (laughs) how do you feel (laughs) i
0: hate that question there was one question i could do away with forever it would be how do you feel well how do you think we feel (laughs) we just survived an attack what do you think but and and thankfully there's nothing about the how do you feel in here I mean but
1: there is the sort of the, the awkward question you know, that, that some people who might hear a TV person particularly ask like uh, detailed sort of questions about things that might be considered morbid or, uh-huh. or uh, not, uh, bad taste. I did have to ask those kinds of questions and it was but I felt for it to be a really accurate history for I viewed when I was writing this book I thought of my grandchild or when I was talking to the people in the book, I would say, picture your own grandchild or whoever you might want to picture in a generation to come, sitting down in their favorite place to read a book. And forget all the TV images we have. I'm talking about a very traditional form of communication, which is a book. It allows you to use your imagination. It allows you to really let words say the story in a personal way to you. Think of that and think of of what you want that person to get out of the book. And for that to be a really representative, accurate portrayal of September 11th. It has to have the detail. I mean, I had to ask one man when he was describing this carnage in the plaza at the World Trade Center, like, what was in the pool of blood? He said body parts. Mm -hmm. I need to ask him if it was arms and legs. And that was not easy to ask, and that was not easy for him to tell me. But it was crucial to his story because he was actually, his his name is... um, Martin Glynn, and he's talking about a police officer that actually prevented people from seeing this scene. And he thinks she saved a lot of lives because she cre- she prevented chaos and she prevented the type of panic that would occur when people saw that. And so for that to resonate, for you to think, for you to buy into basically his story, you have to know, well, what was she preventing people from seeing? And to say a pool of blood just doesn't do it, mm-hmm. especially someone 30, 40 years from now who has no connection to this event like we do. So anyway, there are a lot of hard questions that might be considered journalistically um, uh, offensive to the average person on the outside, but I think when you read it, you'll understand why those questions were asked. And I think you'll read, you'll see the people who I asked answer those questions in the end didn't have a problem answering them. I just really want to make sure that it's clear that the people who are in the book really went through a lot to share these stories. This was not an easy thing. And I really have a whole lot of gratitude to these people because they really are helping us preserve a record that was not easy to preserve. We've all seen the sound bites. We've all seen people talk about that day. But when you see the book, these people talked more than sound bites. These people told you what they were feeling in their hearts. And I just think that is such a gift. It would be a gift under any circumstances. But given the importance of this particular day in our lives and the current history of our country, I can't say thank you enough to them.
2: Dean Murphy is now Associate Managing Editor of the New York Times. Now You can get a copy of September 11th An Oral History by Dean Murphy by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. Now, heardeverything.com is where you'll also hear my 2002 interviews with two other people with very close personal connections to that tragedy. My 2002 conversation with the wife of Todd Beamer, who is the hero of Flight 93, Lisa Beamer.
1: On September 10th. God knew what was going to happen to Todd, and he knew what was going to happen to our country. And, you know, for whatever reason, in Todd's case, he decided not to change the course of history for Todd and not to allow him to take a different flight or get stuck in traffic on the way to the airport.
2: And my interview with New York Fire Department Battalion Chief Richard Picciotto. I thought something was happening in the North Tower, in the building I was in. The noise went through us and then stopped, and then it was a deathly silence. That was the South Tower collapsed And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You find us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including now, of course, YouTube. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we all know about the laws of nature and the laws of physics and so on and so forth. But there are laws of money, too. Says longtime personal finance guru, Susie Orman. So next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 2003 conversation. With Susie Orman.
1: What happens to your money affects your life. Think
0: twice before you trust some financial advisor who makes a living off of what you do
2: with your money. That's next time on now I've heard everything. I'm Bill Thompson.